Right, hello, um, welcome to this week's episode of The Hour of Power with me, Nina Power, coming terrifyingly live from the studio, uh, which is much warmer this week um, and uh, I shouldn't have probably worn my pyjamas, I could have put some proper clothes on, but uh, it's the radio. Um, so this week's show is all about trains um, and my two guests this week, very excitingly, are Alex Gordon, who's the president of the National Union of Rail, Maritime and Transport Workers, um, known as the RMT, as I'm sure you will uh, all have heard of, uh, Britain's largest and most militant railway union which organises workers in rail, road, maritime transport and offshore energy. Um, and my second guest is Ellie Harrison, um, who's the coordinator of the National Bring Back British Rail campaign, which strives to popularise the idea of renationalising um, our public transport system. Um, Ellie is also an artist who lives and works in Glasgow and she describes herself as a political refugee escaped from the Tory strongholds of southern England, which is uh, quite desirable. We've often discussed moving to the Socialist uh, Republic of, of Glasgow. Um, so the theme for this week's show, um, trains and a little bit of trams also, um, and, and, and pity Alex and, and uh, Ellie who have to sit and listen to my essay for half an hour before I bring them on. Um, the theme came from... Um, a recent experience of travelling around three um, quite proximate German cities um, around Dusseldorf and Bonn um, on double-decker or double-deck, um, also known as bi-level trains. And apparently, and, and thinking how kind of wonderful it, and modern it was uh, and really enjoying the kind of the bi-levelness of them. Um, and I was, I was sort of wondering why we didn't have these trains in, in Britain. And uh, so I looked up, I did some research and apparently these trains are sort of more or less impossible due in the UK due to some to the small loading gauge which probably Alex <laughs> could explain better. Um, though an attempt was made with Southern Railway's Dartford commuter route between 1949 and 71, which is actually a long time for, for these um, trains to run, with two 4DD electric multiple units. Um, and they were the only double-deck trains to run on the mainline railway network in Britain, um, apparently. Um, and I was thinking about trains and modernity um, and, and murder, which came to mind not only in the Orient Express or that of strangers on a train um, in the Highsmith novel, um, but also the inseparability of the train from some of the most genocidal elements of recent history. Um, and I was thinking about Different Trains by Steve Reich um, from 1988, which I used to listen to um, quite a lot. Um, and and I, I can't play it all because it's too long and I, so I didn't want to play any of it because I couldn't really do it, do it justice but Different Trains is, is about Reich's um, thinking about um, the train journeys that he made during World War II between New York and Los Angeles to visit his parents um, who had split up um, and years later he, he was thinking about the fact that as a Jew he'd, had he been in Europe instead of the US at the time he might have been travelling um, in Holocaust trains um, so I was thinking about this relationship, um, these different modes of uh, modernity and um, came across this extract from Adorno from Minima Moralia, um, written in the 1940s, of course. He says, Nothing is harmless anymore. The small joys, the expressions of life, which seem to be exempt from the responsibility of thought, not only have a moment of defiant silliness of the cold-hearted turning of a blind eye, but immediately enter the service of their most extreme opposite. Even the tree which blooms lies, the moment that one perceives its bloom without the shadow of horror. Even the innocent, how beautiful, becomes an excuse for the ignominy of existence, which is otherwise. And there is no longer any beauty or any consolation except in the gaze which goes straight to the horror, withstands it, and in the undiminished consciousness of negativity, holds fast to the possibility of that which is better. 
Mistrust is advisable towards everything which is unselfconscious, casual, towards everything which involves letting go, implying indulgence towards the supremacy of the existent. The malign deeper meaning of comfort, which at one time was limited to the toast of cosy sociability, has long since spread to friendlier impulses. When, in the chance conversation with a man on the train, one acquiesces in order to avoid a quarrel, to a couple of sentences which one knows ultimately certify murder, it's already an act of treachery. No thought is immune against its communication, and uttering it at the wrong place and in the context of a false agreement is enough to undercut its truth.
Love City, Meet Iggy Pop and David Bowie, Trans Europe Express, Trans Europe Express, Trans Europe Express, Trans Europe Express. Okay, um, that was a version of uh, Craftworks, well, a version by Craftwork, one of their versions of Trans Europe Express, of course. And I did actually see a Trans Europe Express train uh, near Dusseldorf uh, recently, which was incredibly exciting. Um, so trains have been in the news quite a lot this week, um, yet more fare rises. Um, and also an article by Owen Jones um, talking about um, suicides and on the railways, um, where he writes... Uh, around 200 people a year end their lives on British railways um, and Samaritans have launched a partnership with Network Rail to help railway workers spot the signs of someone who may need support. It is undoubtedly a horrifying trauma for the driver. A few years ago, railway driver Vaughan Thomas wrote of his own experience. Months later, he could still see the victim standing on the track awaiting the inevitable. Tragically, the government has now withdrawn compensation for drivers scarred by such incidents. Um, and I think it's this combination of um, the sort of the undoubted kind of power of um, the trains and uh, this sort of double-edged um, modernity that they represent, um, as well as the, the kind of ongoing material questions about privatisation and rail workers, which we'll talk about um, later, which um, I think has been on my mind um, this week. Um, and one way of, of thinking about modernity um, and trains is always, um, is always comes to mind, for me at least, is, is in the work of Ludwig Feuerbach, um, who I think was far more astutely aware of the practical material and modern context in which he wrote um, than he's usually given credit for. He's usually positioned as a kind of um, idealist, um, kind of, you know, a sort of humanist philosopher and, and in the wake of um, who Marx sweeps all, all away. And uh, But I'd like to read this quote from uh, Feuerbach from 1843 from the second preface of The Essence of Christianity, where he writes, I have sketched the historical solution of Christianity and have shown that Christianity has in fact vanished, not only from the reason but from the life of mankind, that it is nothing more than a fixed idea, in flagrant contradiction with our fire and life assurance companies, our railroads and steam carriages, our picture and sculpture galleries, our military and industrial schools, our theatres and scientific museums. And I think in that quote from Feuerbach, it's a very kind of clear identification of the sort of material force, the secularising force of um, the railways, uh, among other things. Um, but I wonder, thinking about the absence of uh, bi-level trains, um, whether we have in fact gone backwards in some sense um, in terms of this kind of relationship between railways and modernity. And uh, I, I, I also discovered that double-decker trams were common in British cities uh, prior to the dismantling of the networks. Um, between the 1930s and the 1960s. Um, and I was thinking about the relationship between trains and trams and, and perhaps um, the sort of sadness that there aren't really more trams <laughs> in the world as an eminently kind of sensible um, mode of kind of urban um, and suburban transportation. Um, so I'm going to play a song which uh, sort of celebrates in a, a trippy way the, the trams of old London. Trams of old London 
Okay, that was um, that was Robin Hitchcock um, and Trams of Old London. Um, I'm going to read like a long extract now from um, an essay by the the late Tony Judd um, from an essay from 2010 called "The Glory of the Rails," which I think is an excellent essay um, about the, this relationship between um, the railway and modernity. He writes. More than any other technical design or social institution, the railway stands for modernity. No competing form of transport, no subsequent technological innovation, no other industry has wrought or facilitated change on the scale that has been brought about by the invention and adoption of the railway. Oh, and I'm going to pause that quote to um, go back to something that Alex just uh, told me um, in between uh, when we were listening to that song about the Duke of Wellington. Um, that In the foyback quote, I talked about how basically... Um, trains are seeming sort of incompatible with a kind of older era and a belief in God and uh, the kind of secularising force of, of railways. And um, Alex said that uh, in about the 1820s, the Duke of Wellington um, feared that if m- men went faster than galloping horses, then there would be a, a revolution. 
Um, so we'll come back to revolutionary trains um, in a minute. Um, back to Tony Judd, he writes, The conquest of space led inexorably to the reorganisation of time. Even the modest speeds of early trains between 20 and 35 miles per hour were beyond the wildest imaginings of all but a handful of engineers. Most travellers and observers reasonably assumed not only that the railway had revolutionised spatial relationships and the possibilities of communication, but also that moving at unprecedented velocity and with no impediments to heed their advance, trains were extraordinarily dangerous, as indeed they were. Signalling, communication and braking systems were always one step behind the steady increase in power and speed of the engines, until well into the later 20th century trains were better at moving than stopping. This being so, it was vital to keep them at a safe distance from one another and to know at all times where they were. And thus, from technical considerations and for reasons of safety as much as commerce, convenience or publicity, was born the railway timetable. Judd continues, It is hard today to convey the significance and implications of the timetable which first appeared in the 18 early 1840s. For the organisation of the railways themselves, of course, but also for the daily lives of everyone else. The pre-modern world was space-bound, its modern successor time-bound. The transition took place in the middle decades of the 19th century and with remarkable speed, accompanied by the ubiquitous station clock, on prominent specially constructed towers at all major stations, inside every station booking hall, on platforms, and in the pocket form in the possession of railway employees. Everything that came after, the establishment of nationally and internationally agreed time zones, factory time clocks, the ubiquity of the, the wristwatch, time schedules for buses, ferries and planes, for radio and television programmes, school timetables and much else merely followed suit. Railways were proud of the indomitable place of trains and the organisation and command of time. Okay, everybody, lie down on the floor and keep calm.
Okay, that was the um, KLF um, with Last Train to Transcentral uh, from 1991. Um, and I'm sure I used to uh, uh, skate around on my roller skates to that at um, my local roller disco, uh, embarrassingly enough. Um, okay, so just a little bit before I bring my guests in on the uh, the politics of trains, because I think it's interesting um, thinking about the relationship between kind of forward propulsion and modernity and the, and the speed of the train to think about those, those points where it's... Uh, the kind of the timetable and the network has been um, disrupted, um, not only by strike action but also by accidents. Um, and I was just recently reading an, uh, a piece by uh, Ben Noyes, uh, Benjamin Noyes, a recent kind of article by him on called "The Organisation of Destruction," in which he talks about the railway disaster um, at, at Tay um, in 1879, um, in December 1879, where a passenger train um, sort of collapsed after the bridge. Um, uh, the Iron Bridge, the new Iron Bridge, kind of collapsed, and the trains sort of plunged into the into the Tay. Um, and there was actually a kind of uh, rumour that um, Marx and Engels were supposed to be on that train, <laughs> um, but they missed it either because they were drunk or uh, they were they were somewhere else. But it, it doesn't look like they were anywhere near at the time. But it's uh, it's uh, it's uh, apparently it's a, a kind of uh, urban legend in Dundee. Um, and in this essay uh, where Ben talks about this, because uh, Walter Benjamin um, actually discusses this in a radio broadcast for children in 1932. Um, and there's the kind of the well-known remark from uh, Walter Benjamin from on the concept of history, um, where he says, Marx says that revolutions are the locomotive of world history, but perhaps it is quite other otherwise. Perhaps revolutions are an attempt by the passengers on this train, namely the human race, to activate the emergency brake. 
Um, and thinking about that idea of disruption, um, what comes to mind, of course, is the the kind of the prosecution of the the so-called Tarnak Nine or Tarnak Tarnak Ten um, in Paris, who were supposed to be connected um, with malicious acts against the SNCF um, that caused delays of uh, many TGV trains um, on the Paris-Lille line um, a few years ago. Um, and there's an interesting. Um, I think this was in 2008, uh, they arrested and, and they're kind of the arrest operation involved massive helicopters and 150 balaclava clad anti-terrorist police um, and so on. Um, and so this kind of accusation of sabotage against the um, against the TGV network um, with iron bars and so on. Um, and these and people involved in um, Tikkun and, and various of those groups were obviously alleged to um, have participated. Um, and this kind of caused a lot of uh, intellectual and political um, outrage. Um, and there's a piece by um, Giorgio Agambin, um, published in Liberation in 2008, called Terrorism or Tragicomedy, um, in which he talks about, um, about train de- delays and what it might mean to kind of put a spanner in the works, as it were. He says, the suspect's activities are supposed to be connected with malicious acts against SNCF that on November the 8th caused delays of certain TGV trains on the Paris-Lille line. The devices in question, if we are to believe the declarations and the police and the SNCF agents themselves, can in no way cause harm to people. They can, in the worst case, hinder communications between trains, causing delays. In Italy, trains are often late, but so far no one has dreamed of accusing the National Railway of terrorism. (laughs) which I thought was um, a great line. Um, Okay, I'm going to bring my guests in uh, in a minute, but I'm just going to play one um, final track, which I I liked for its um, simplicity. So here we go. Look at me, I'm a train on a track. I'm a train, I'm a train, I'm a train, yeah. Look at me, got a load on my back, I'm a train, I'm a train, I'm a chicken train, yeah. Look at me, I'm going somewhere, I'm a train, I'm a train, I'm a chicken train, yeah. Look at me, I'm going somewhere, I'm a train, I'm a train, I'm a chicken train, yeah. Been a hard day, yes it has been a hard day, yes it has been a I'm a chicka train, I'm a chicka train, I'm a chicka train, I'm a train, I'm a chicka train, chicka train, yeah. Look at me, I'm a train on a line, I'm a train, I'm a train, I'm a chicka train, yeah. Look at me for the very last time, I'm a train, I'm a train, I'm a chicka train. Yeah. It's been a life that's long and hard I'm a train, I'm a train, I'm a chicken train Yeah I'm going down to the baker's yard I'm a train, I'm a train, I'm a chicken train Yeah, been a hard day Yes, it has been a hard day Yes, it has been a hard day Yes, it has I'm a train, I'm a chicken train I'm a chicken train, I'm a train I'm a chicken train, chicken train yeah. 
Okay, that was the um, the slightly silly I'm a Train by Albert Hammond. Um, okay, um, I was originally in the essay going to talk a little bit about um, more about a kind of guess classical philosophy and trains. Um, but of course, the, the most kind of infamous um, train example in, in ethics, at least, is the trolley problem, um, as described by Philip of Foote in 1967. And like with all sort of analytic philosophy thought experiments, it's, it's just... Uh, so silly um, that I, I couldn't really be bothered to talk about it. But anyway, that's that's the kind of philosophy component. Um, I also received some great notes from Amanda Armstrong, um, who's working on um, the relationship between um, train drivers' manuals and those of nurses um, in the mid-19th century. Um, but she sent me some notes on the Lanelli railway strike riots of 1911, <laughs> I, which I'm not pronouncing correctly. <laughs> Oh, whatever. <laughs> I went through there last week. Is that how you say it? Yeah. Oh, my God, that looks nothing like it, right? It's Carmarthenshire, isn't it? Uh, yeah. It's well, anyway. Oh, is it? Alex knows more about it. <laughs> um, but I got some great notes from her on the, um, the 1911... Da-da-da. Clinically. Railway strike riots. Um, everyone can say it better than me. Um, and there's a kind of really, really uh, dreadful quote from Churchill um, at the time... Um, yeah, it's saying transport ev- workers everywhere are getting to know their strength and those conversant of labour matters in practice anticipate great upheaval. A new force has arisen in trade unionism whereby the power of the old leaders has proved quite ineffective and the sympathetic strike on a wide scale is prominent. Shipping, coal, railways, dockers, etc, etc, all uniting and breaking out at once. The general strike policy is a factor which must be dealt with. Um, and so on and on he goes. Um, so I think on that note I'd like to bring in um, Alex and Ellie um, who have been informing me of all manner of interesting things while the songs were playing, um, including about what the, the gauge thing means, why we can't have um, double-decker trains in this country, um, and it's to do with the, how small the tunnels are. Um, and we were talking about the box tunnel, and Alex, you, you, that's your line. It, it certainly is, yeah. I've uh, driven trains through box tunnel. And uh, it, I was just... When you mentioned uh, the reaction to railways in the 19th century. When that was dug, uh, Box Tunnel, which is just about a mile long, dead straight, and urban legend has it, which is probably false, well, it's definitely false, that you can see the sun rise through it mm-hmm. because it's an east-west tunnel on Brunel's birthday. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the original passengers on the first trains that went through it uh, either chose or were forced to disembark at box mm-hmm. for a coach and horses to be taken round the hill and to reboard the train at Corsham on the other side because they were afraid they would die <laughs> if they went through such a long tunnel. I should note that Corsham is where I grew up. Um, <laughs> so that's a great story, and I can't believe I've never heard that about people being too frightened to go through the, uh, the tunnel. Um 
but yeah, okay. I mean, I wanted to talk to you both. Um, we can talk about the, these historical um, things as well, but um, really about what's happening next week because obviously there's a kind of big protest um, coming up. Maybe if we start with that. I mean, Ellie, I don't know if you want to talk about what's happening um, on the 11th. Oh, well, on the 11th of December, it's uh, there's a National Day of Action, which is being organised by a campaign called Action for Rail, which is... The Trade Union Congress, so it's sort of a collaborative campaign. RMT are involved, Indeed. are they not? We yeah, are. Yes, yes. Yeah. and TSSA <laughs> and um, ASLEF and the three main transport unions. And so, yeah, if you go on their website, you can see there's actions happening outside stations all over the country where people are demonstrating against fare increases because mm-hmm. fares are going to go up again in January as they do every year. Um, above inflation and against job cuts as well because the McNulty report, which, I mean, Alex knows a lot more about this than I do. I'm not a transport expert other than the fact that I travel a lot on the trains and get to experience all these problems firsthand. Alex is the real expert, but the McNulty report... um, which they're, they're trying to implement now in the new franchise systems, just recommends lots and lots and lots of job cuts in favour of um, machines, basically, isn't it? Ticket machines and uh, ticket barriers and all sorts of things that you can see coming into play on the infrastructure at the moment. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that beautifully extemporised, by the way. Um, that was... <laughs> the, the reality is that We've got a rail system at present in Britain now, which is the result of just over 17 years of privatisation and the effects are absolutely obvious to everyone. If you've got a season ticket or if you can afford a season ticket or if you're just travelling occasionally and have to buy a ticket at the last minute, you're stung for more money than any other comparable rail system anywhere in the world. Uh, The ticket prices in this country uh, have gone through the roof. And you have people now, because we have unregulated rents uh, and house prices in London and in any other city, you also have people forced further and further away from where they work. Uh, So you have people now paying more for their season ticket than they pay for their mortgage or their rent. Absolutely impossible uh, economic model to sustain. And what the rail unions are saying is the system's broken. Uh, We're not going to fix it by flinging more public money at Richard Branson and his colleagues, uh, the private train operators, uh, because their plan is to try and make railways profitable again uh, by cutting rail workers' jobs. And they're looking at about 20,000 jobs throughout the rail industry being cut in the next few years. So that would be the people you and your listeners rely on to deliver them a safe service. So it would be the people on the platform, the people in the booking office, the guard on the train, uh, the people on the track who are doing inspecting the infrastructure. And there's an enormous downward pressure now uh, within the rail industry to cut jobs. Mm-hmm. And that is going to lead to a repetition of the fatalities and quote-unquote accidents uh, that we saw in the late 1990s and early 2000s uh, when the railways were privatised under the last Tory government. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, with the, the kind of the recent um, kind of sort of scandal over the West Coast main line, I mean, that was resolved again in favour of Virgin. Um, I mean, is there any kind of pressure you can put on, on that? I mean, what's... 
Well, the, I mean, the, the, the answer to that question is that we need to have a political party with the courage uh, and conviction to stand up and say what 70% of the people in this country want, which is that railways should be a public service, publicly owned and renationalised. And at the moment, you've got three main political parties who all just fall over themselves to show that they're good at managing privatisation. Mm -hmm. uh, the criticisms from the Labour uh, spokesperson, Maria Regal, of the West Coast Mainline franchise fiasco uh, have been purely on the question of the competence of the government in managing a franchising process. Nothing to do with the actual question of whether railways ought to be a public service run in the interests of the people or whether they should be allowed to be used essentially as a tax farming exercise, which is what Sir Richard Branson and his colleagues do at the moment. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that kind of 70% um, in favour of taking back the railways into public ownership point, because, you know, that's that's a lot a lot of people. I mean, I remember when sort of privatisation and franchises were kicking in, um, and it was an incredibly unpopular decision then as well, and it, it seems like it's not stopped being unpopular and has, in fact, become more unpopular. Um, you know, and I think that the campaign that you're running, Ellie, the uh, Bring Back British Rail campaign, which you founded in 2009, I mean, you know, what's your feeling about kind of public sort of sentiment and feeling behind that campaign? I mean, yeah. how's, how's it going? Well, I think, I mean, really, I set up the campaign in 2009 when I suddenly, I was doing a lot of reading and research and a lot of travelling at the same time, and it suddenly dawned on me what a failure this privatisation, private privatised system was and that was through first time experience of you know trains being delayed mm -hmm. and one company saying oh it's their fault and they ha you know they have a huge administration of bureaucrats just to fight over who's responsible for delays and things which wouldn't be necessary if it was all one unified system so um, I decided that because so much time had passed since privatisation went through that it seemed that there need to be like a mainstream popular campaign that just existed to remind people that we used to have a nationally owned um, rail network because, I mean, I was only, I think, 15 when the railways were privatised, so I wasn't really aware of what um, John Major and all his buddies were up to at the time, and I remember catching trains in the 90s, but, you know, I hadn't really clocked on, and... So there's people younger than me um, out there who just don't realise that in 1948, when British Railways was founded, it was founded because the Labour government realised that actually transport was a public service um, that was essential to enable people to live their lives and that actually they'd be able to do a much better job providing that service if they didn't have private companies involved. So they put compulsory, um, what do they call it, compulsory purchase or whatever, and they took over all of the private companies that used to operate mm -hmm. the railways before 1948 and brought them all under well, one roof and created British Railways. And we had British Railways, which were excellent, until the 1960s, um, when the uh, beaching cuts uh, took place and and the investment that should be there for any public service in in for for it to you know to to provide you know for people to be able to use it the investment disappeared and they cut loads of branch lines and because they thought the car was the future but now 
now we all know that trains are the future. We I need agree. To we need to restart modernity again. and, you know, like kickstart the train again. I think, I really think so. And I mean, this question of cost, I mean, it's obviously like at the level of, you know, people, you're like you're saying, using trains all the time. I mean, you know, people would use trains much more if, if they weren't so expensive i mean you know you get you know it's like an hour and 10 minutes to go back and see my parents and it you know if i don't buy a ticket sort of you know seven weeks in advance it's absolutely unbelievable i mean you know like 80 100 quid or something for an incredibly short journey really yeah Um, uh, that's right and i think i mean all of that is true and that's how most most of the people listening to this program are going to see uh, at first, what's wrong mm-hmm. with the privatised system we've got? But we, I think we also need to be aware that what we've lost in the last 25 years, and particularly the last 20 since privatisation was really pushed through as a policy, uh, is a lot more than just uh, accessible fare prices. Yeah, yeah. Because if you look at where you grew up, for example, Nina, just down the track from Swindon, uh, which was a massive employer of engineers, people building trains, uh, we've more or less dissipated and wasted uh, an extremely good export industry that was built up over more than 100 years in this country based on incredible skill levels, apprenticeships, technical skills, and even cutting-edge... I mean, the British Rail test laboratories at Derby, uh, which were closed in the run-up to privatisation because nobody wanted to take them on and spend the the long-term investment money on R&D. Those laboratories were absolutely world-class. And if you look now at the the market in trains, there are three or four big train builders in the world. One of them is French, Alstom, Mm -hmm. uh, and is essentially a state-supported, if not a state-owned company. Another one's German, Siemens. Uh, Again, more or less uh, a state-run, if not state-owned company. Uh, Hitachi in Japan and Bombardier uh, in Canada. And between those four companies, they're in charge of one of the biggest markets, one of the biggest export markets in the world, which is in train manufacturing. In Britain, in the, just in our own lifetimes, in the last 20, 25 years, we've destroyed uh, an industry which took over 100 years to build up. And it's not beyond retrieval, but the last factory in Britain which builds trains from scratch is on a knife edge at the moment in Derby. Mm -hmm. And this government has decided last year that they're going to give first preference on the new uh, train contract for the Thameslink trains, which run between here, uh, where we are now in London Bridge, uh, through to King's Cross uh, and north to Bedford that the new trains for that line are in fact going to be given to Siemens to be built in Germany with your money, your taxpayers' money, to fund jobs in German factories rather than building skills for our children and our future uh, and uh, you know some real infrastructure for our society um, to make it a sustainable uh, railway industry again. So I am just yeah. want to really underline the fact that it's not just about ticket prices. Of course not, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, completely. Um, okay, and, and in terms of this sort of history, I'm, I'm going to play one of the tracks that you, Alex, chose. Um, so here we go. Blasters 
rocks. I never drank water, but whiskey by pints. And the shanty towns rang with their songs and their fights. Navigator, navigator, rise up and be strong. The morning is here and there's work to be done. Okay, that was um, Navigator um, by the Pogues, and it was chosen by um, Alex. Um, it tells the story of, of the men who built Brit- Britain's railways. Um, 
And I guess we're just going to talk about a couple of things uh, in the last uh, little bit. Um, just to go back to the action for rail protests that are coming up on the 11th. Um, Alex, if you want to say a bit about what's going to happen and, and how, sort of how wide, widely these kind of actions are taking place. Yeah, it's a nationwide protest. There are going to be uh, groups of railway workers, trade unionists and railway users, commuters, uh, giving out Christmas cards on Tuesday the 11th of December at dozens and dozens of main railway stations right across the British railway network. Um, and the Christmas cards will be saying uh, that we've had enough of the privatisation rip-off and we want our railway back. So if anyone wants to know any more about it and to take part, we'd be very, very glad to work with them. Uh, all you need to do is go online to www.actionforrail.org and all of the details of the various stations where actions are being organised and the times uh, will be on there. Just turn up, make yourself known to the RMT person there and they will welcome you with open arms. <laughs> Excellent. Um, yeah, I mean, there was just one thing we wanted to pick up on. I mean, I mentioned in the Owen Jones quote earlier about this, um, that the government were drawing compensation for drivers scarred by kind of incidents um, on the railways, but you were saying... it in relation to the criminal injuries compensation scheme that it's much kind of wider than that and I wonder if you just talk about that yeah just very briefly because it, it is very very important when you in order to understand the sheer unpleasantness of this government if for no other reason yeah the a scheme which has been in existence for decades which compensates innocent victims of crime uh, these are people who are, for example, bystanders when crimes happen but are badly affected by those crimes uh, and for whom there is no third party insurance or compensation available, they're compensated on a very, very modest scale of damages by the government. And that scheme has existed for, as I said, a couple of decades. It's just been uh, killed off by this government. And the people who it affects in my industry are the people like the train drivers, the guards, the permanent way staff, the, t the track maintenance workers, who witness uh, in front of them, suicides happening and fatalities happening uh, on the railway when desperate people, uh, either intentionally or because they're out of their senses, uh, use the railway to end their life. And the, the people who have to pick up the pieces, literally, um, are our members. And that scars them. And yeah. sometimes they're not able to work again. And for a very, very modest compensation scheme that attempts to look after those people in some material way has just been ended by this government and it's a real symbol of quite how reactionary they are yeah i mean and and you know especially at a time when you know people are more likely to be suicidal precisely because of other things that this same government are doing so you know it's sort of grim all round really um and uh, maybe bring ellie in here because she, she said she wanted to strike an optimistic note <laughs> in I think our discussion. So. I was starting to feel quite depressed, but I... <laughs> I have I, that effect. This, no, this government has that effect, but I don't believe it's going to last till the next term. I just think it's on the way out. I, I am a bit of an eternal optimist, which is what I wanted to talk about. And I think that's why I started the campaign, really, because... You know, I said it was a, it was about acting as a reminder that we used to have our railways run as a public mm -hmm. service. Um, an important reminder is of to what is possible for us to go back to if we have that political willpower. And one of the things that I always kind of hold as a motto is the situationist slogan. Um, 
I only know, I'm only going to say it in English. Uh, Be realistic, demand the impossible. And in 2009, when I was uh, setting up the campaign, I was aware, you know, there was stuff going on in the unions, but there was nothing outside the unions. There was no mainstream campaign that was saying, look, let's not have this ridiculous Mm. privatised railway system. Let's have it run for the people that actually need to use it rather than for, for private profiteers. So, yeah, I am an eternal optimist, and maybe that's why it's useful that you have... Um, an artist who has come in and took completely out of my field, like campaigning in public transport, because I am kind of got a fresh perspective and maybe a little naive and a little crazy, but that's what it takes because once the alternative's on the table, people start to, to notice it and think, yeah, actually, our lives would be better. Yeah, well, I agree completely. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's interesting. We've seen this a lot happening lately where there are campaign groups that, that, you know, are outside the unions but linking up with them. You know, we see it with UK and Cut and so on. And it's, and, you know, obviously RMT and other, you know, transport unions are supporting your campaign. And and I think that kind of meshing and like interweaving of campaigns is really interesting. Yeah. And, you know, quite important. And and I guess, I mean, there's we were talking about kind of shared. interest in another dimension which is a kind of the environmental question in relation to transport which is something Ellie I know you're 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 big on but I mean you know and also just practically you know about the the kind of the difference between massive car use and 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 then you know then trains and trams you know if they were affordable and if they were you know not renationalized um so I just wondered if you wanted both to say a bit about the environmental dimension well, um, just quickly, because we're running out of time, aren't we? But I, I mean, I, I, I guess I don't think I was deliberately looking around for an issue to campaign about, but it just seemed that all of my interests sort of converge, and I like solutions that seem to um, offer answers to lots of different problems. So with something like public transport, for me, not only does um, trains and, and buses and a fully functioning integrated public transport system offer the opportunity to reduce carbon emissions, to take people out of their cars. You know, if you can afford to travel on it, mm-hmm. and it's a real alternative for making long-distance journeys, then you're going to choose that option. But also, um, it, for me, symbolises the kind of a, a, rever- a reverting... a. Rev- an inversion of like the atomization of society you know that the way that the car symbolizes the way that we've been divided and split up over the last 30 years through all of these neoliberal policies so if we all get back together on the train yeah then you know if we're traveling together then at least we're spending more time together and that's a sort of society that can then can come about as a result of that so for me public transport was a converging of all of these issues that I cared about and that's why I decided to invest so much time in campaigning to renationalize the railways excellent Alex yeah can I just I mean I think by the way I'm an optimist as well and I I, I don't want to uh, get you down by uh, talking about death and too much but the point that came to my mind earlier Ellie when you were talking about 1948 and the nationalisation of railways was that it wasn't just the railways that were nationalised, the post-war Labour government established something called the British Transport Commission and they took into public ownership canals, railways, road transport including road freight uh, and shipping and they brought it all under one uh, organised ministry uh, commission uh, to make best use of resources to rebuild Britain after the war and 
if you look at what's happening now, what's so sad about it, it's not just that we are sometimes incredulous that no politician comes forward and says, hey, I'm going to appeal to those 70% of the electorate who actually want to see uh, some kind of public ownership in the railway system. Uh, what's really shocking about it is that th I think it's a deliberate process of smashing up modernity and smashing up the nation state. It's not by accident that this is happening. Max Weber, the sociologist, said that the three pillars of the modern state are railways, post offices and schools. And you can sort of see how by taking out uh, a three, one of the legs or two of the legs now with a privatisation of post services of a, of a three-legged stool, the whole thing falls over. The modern state cannot manage without a publicly owned, centrally controlled railway system. And the people who are allowing that to happen are people who are actually assisting the breakup of the society that we've got now. And this message, which Ellie and her colleagues in Bring Back British Rail is getting across very well, I think, through uh, stickers and uh, badges and stunts that uh, we've done outside railway stations, I think that will find a deep and rich vein in the British public. People love railways in this country yeah. because they feel it's part of their culture. The railways made Britain. I mean, as you said at the beginning of the programme, we wouldn't have national participatory and spectator uh, sports events without a national railway system. We wouldn't have one time zone. You know, We wouldn't have uh, that sense of shared togetherness and collectiveness mm -hmm. uh, and we need a political party that will stand up and say that that is what is missing at the moment we need a new political party for stop <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> I think we were just going to finish with a couple of um, announcements and a reminder about the the kind of the eleventh the sort of events on the um, Tuesday the eleventh um, coming up. Um, Ellie's going to relaunch her website in the new year. Is yeah, that correct. That is correct. It's just taking a very 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 long time. But what the new website is going to do is going to act as a way of just amassing support. So, like you say, seventy percent. I'm sure it's more than seventy percent. Yeah. So it's going to be an ongoing petition because this is a long term fight, and I'm in it for the long haul. And I want anybody who supports the campaign, when the new website launches, to come online and register your support and leave a comment. And this is going to build out over time and hopefully create that weight that we need to influence politicians that this is the right thing to do. Yep. And Alex, you, um, you've got a book coming out as well. Yeah, it's just been published. We've, we're celebrating the centenary uh, in next February of the founding of the National Union of Railway Men, um, which uh, which was the title that they, they chose, uh, not a title that we choose today. Uh, but it was Britain's first industrial union, and it was a very courageous and important step by uh, the railway workers to bring themselves together uh, into one organisation, uh, representing all workers across the industry. And there's a book available from the RMT uh, by post or online from our web shop. Okay, brilliant. Well, thank you both for being my guests. An excellent guest you were too. Um, and that was trains. Um, but they won't go away, hopefully. Um, and that's me for this week. We've got one more show before um, Christmas, uh, I think. So, yeah. Um, cheers. <laughs>